The Water Values Podcast, Session 151. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be back after that July hiatus. Thanks so much for coming back and, and sharing your time with me. Um, for those of you who have completed the listener survey, I just want to say thank you very much. It's been very informative so far. And if you haven't completed that survey, it only takes about two minutes. Head over to thewatervalues.com and click on the you know, click and, and click on the link for the survey. Uh, I will also be sending out the uh, link in the newsletter that's going out with this episode, so you can click on that too and 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 take the survey that way. Really appreciate it uh, if you donate two minutes of your time to help us improve the Water Values Podcast. Well, we have a great show for you today. We have Aaron Hyatt. Uh, Aaron is an American who has uh, been working in the water and sewer industry uh, down in Australia, down under, and he's going to do a great job talking with us about governance, infrastructure, and a host of other issues encountered uh, by Australian utilities. <clears throat> we also have Reese Tisdale, who's back with the Bluefield on Tap segment. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, thank you all for the ratings and reviews that you've left over the uh, over the July hiatus. Really appreciate it. I think we picked up six five-star ratings. I'll read the reviews later because we do have a long show, and I'm just going to uh, kind of speed through uh, certain segments of this that are normal. Like at the end, I'm, I'm going to have a very abbreviated end. Uh, so, And, and the, the segment between the Bluefield on Tap and the feature interview with Aaron Hyatt, I'm going to keep very, very short. So uh, we got a lot to get to. They're long interviews. I want to to, to get you as much of the content as possible and less of me just talking. So here we go. Let's get to Reese Tisdale with our Bluefield on Tap segment, which precedes the uh, feature interview with Aaron Hyatt. So, Reese, let's take it away with Bluefield on Tap. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefield on Tap session. Uh, great to have you back. I know it's been a little bit since you've been on. We've had some of your colleagues on. So uh, how, how's your summer been going? We're in the throes of it right now. Things are busy work, busy work wise, but hey, it's summertime. I'm going to Maine tonight, so oh, good. The weekend in Maine. All right, we'll have some lobster for me. Um, so, uh, what 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 what's on your mind? What's kind of been uh, percolating through uh, as as kind of July's rolled on here, and we're into summer? What what kind of the, are the big water issues you're seeing? Um, among everything, I would say the. Uh, the one thing that I that I we see always this time of year that I think is really interesting is the role of or impact of algae blooms, you know, on drinking water. We're seeing a lot more activity. Happens every year at this time. You know, we've had a really wet spring. Um, I think country, you know, across the country, temperatures have been really high. I think we I just read even in Boston, which is where I am, highest recorded July ever record, you know, ever. And uh and then nutrient runoff. So there's more nutrient runoff, and so we're seeing more algae blooms. Yeah. So what's what's the scope of the geographic areas affected? I mean, is this kind of concentrated? To it? I mean, we all have heard of Toledo, right? Are there are there other areas that are that are being impacted? Yeah. I mean, Toledo is the poster child, um, and I think all, that's why in Ohio you, you're, we're seeing more regulations and activity uh, pushing for either monitoring and solutions or treatment solutions. We're seeing place in uh, activity in Oregon. Those are the two front runners statewide. Statewide, but 
the Midwest, obviously, you get a lot of run nutrient runoff in the surface bodies, and so there you're seeing that. But then even along the coast, there's a lot of activity. I mean, once again, in Boston, Charles River, the, the notoriously dirty Charles River, which is reportedly clean, they're telling, there's now a, a, a warning right now for uh, cyanobacteria and impact on, on the waterways, so telling people not even to stick their hands in it. But I think, you know, like I said, it's summertime, uh, whether it be on the coast of North Carolina, whether it be in Mississippi, so you're seeing a lot of uh, algae bloom activity along the Gulf Coast. And so it's potentially ruining people's summer vacations. And the way we look at it from the water industry, we see it as an opportunity for, for solutions. All right. Talk to me about those solutions. Yeah. So I'd say the one way, one thing to think about it is, you can't do anything about anything unless you know something about it. So the first step is monitoring, right? And so what we're seeing is our forecast. We put something out. It was uh, in the fall last year, I believe it was when, I, when it went out. We're seeing a monitoring opportunity. This is if all the states really take on measures that we're seeing in places like Ohio and Oregon. It's about a $72 million a year business just for monitoring, and that would be Basically, sensors, you know, if you have remote monitoring and sensors in place, it'll tell you where do you stand, how regular, what are the input, what's driving it. Um, and then on the back end, there are the treatment solutions, which, quite honestly, the solutions exist. It's not rocket science. Um, we're seeing things like uh, activated carbon, you know, and that would be when it's all said and done. And this is just really to remove the taste and odor of drink. If this is for drinking water specifically, right. removing taste and odor, uh, odor issues. It's like $33 million annually. Not, not huge dollars, right? I mean, we're talking about U.S. municipal public water spending being 110 to $120 billion in any given year on OPEX and CAPEX. What's, what's an extra, you know, Hundred million dollars, really not all that much. Yeah, but but even if it's a hundred million dollars, it's still impacting rates. You know, utilities are all already under significant rate pressure. Um, how how are the utilities uh, responding? I mean, what 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 are you seeing out there? And I guess this would be the municipal market primarily, uh, all right. the IOUs. But so, what are you seeing out there from the municipals? Yeah, I mean, look, the the utilities, they have their capital improvement plans. They're in place. Sometimes they go, you know, one, two, to out to five years. So they have an idea what's happening. What I think we're going to see is there's more public pushback, particularly as it's impacting surface bodies where people are active, um, you know, and there is an impact there. How is this going to be managed on the drinking water side? If it's impacting their drinking water, there's there's a cost to it. What we're seeing in our in our rates you know, they're growing it. I think our last report, which came out this summer across the U.S., on average about 3.6% rate growth from year to year. So from 2018 to 2019, 3.6% increase in rates, which is really not that much um, to take care of this plus the aging infrastructure plus the other issues, just larger storm events and other uh capital and operating needs, yeah, it, it, it's another piece of the spending pie that needs to be addressed. And like anything else, we're going to have to be more creative and more predictive or more anticipatory in what we do rather than reactive. That's how the money is going to be saved.
Right, right. Uh, t- talk to me a little about, you, you mentioned the sensors and monitoring. I mean, nutrient runoff is famously non-point source, right? So it's harder, uh, it's harder to, to, to I, you know, pinpoint exactly where it's coming from, but you can obviously, you know, identify the uh, levels in waterways. So what, what are these monitoring stations looking like? Are, you know, are they, are they within waterways or is it just certain points in a, in a lake or, uh, can talk, talk to me a little about I think there's surface bodies at the intake points and sort of where at the reservoirs and what's happening there. You're exactly right. The non-point source pollution is, is a significant issue and something that how do you really, how do you police it, right? You know, who's mm-hmm. responsible? And we are, in fact, seeing some policies or discussions of lawsuits, who's liable for these sorts of things in certain states um, popping up. How realistic is that? Um, you know, identifying all the farmers because they're using certain fertilizers and they're impacting water bodies. That's that's tough to, to manage. It's really closer to the intakes uh, and at the facilities themselves. It's going to have to be to have to be monitored. Yeah, and that's where and yeah, and so what you're seeing is companies like you know Zy- companies like Xylem or Danaher. They have solutions that are already readily available to uh, to be deployed in these in these situations. Right, right, and you know, in Des Moines, famously uh, uh, sued sued uh, the farmers over this issue and and lost. So you're exactly right. It's really hard to uh, you know push that liability onto the farmers who are uh, putting on the nutrients. Um, well, any any final words on uh, the algal blooms? I mean, I think, you know, we saw it in 2016 during the presidential or Florida governor elections is more specifically, you know, algal blooms. It's an issue. People get excited about a place. A place like Florida is a good example. There's tourism. People want to use the, you know, the water for swimming. And if they can't do it indefinitely, if it impacts their drinking water, it's a big issue. I mean, you know, and it, it, it impacts the community. It can impact the community as a whole. It is a, and it's a growing problem that we're starting to see. Yeah. Good deal. Well, Reese, I really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, thanks for coming back on. Look forward to the next one. All right, Dave. Take it easy. Talk soon. Uh, Yep. You bet. Bye. As always, great information from Reese Tisdale of Bluefield Research. Uh, Next, we have our feature interview with Aaron Hyatt. Uh, This is going to be a great interview. You're really going to enjoy hearing about how Australian utilities are governed, what their infrastructure issues are, and some perhaps creative ways to uh, work through utility issues down under. So here we are with our feature interview with Aaron Hyatt. Well, Aaron, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on, uh, especially with with our time difference here. How are you doing today? I'm doing very good, David. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. <laughs> sure. Well, we're happy to have you here. Uh, could you give our listeners a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Absolutely. Uh, so I was born in Arizona uh, back in the 70s, uh, just a, a bit of my age there. I uh, <laughs> grew up in a, in, a, in a desert and a very dry, very hot kind of environment. Um, and uh, fortunately, in, in about eighth grade, I had a really excellent science teacher, uh, Mrs. Simonson, who just really turned a passion in me for, for science and, and started to pr- pursue a career in science. Um, so I, when I turned 19, I went to university in Hawaii and I studied uh, biology and, and psychology. And I, when I graduated from there, I moved to, to Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, started a, some research, uh, brain research basically, and decided that research was just a little bit too competitive for me. And so fortunately, found my way into public health. 
so uh, I had a, a really good career in public health, really enjoyed it. It's that kind of mix of science, but also environment and also, you know, social. Uh, and then in 2009, made a really big decision to, to move to Australia and get a master's in public health at the University of Queensland and, uh, and have eventually landed in the job I have now where I represent local governments or, or counties, uh, the, the U.S. equivalent of counties, um, on water and surge issues. And so it's been a really interesting kind of <laughs> journey I've had over the last few, few years. Yeah, that's, that's a, so, so did you get two summers in a row or two winters in a row? <laughs> no, I actually I moved here in February, which is the height of summer, and I had just come from Chicago, where it was minus twenty-seven degrees. <laughs> and it, I understand it was warmer at the North Pole that day, which was one of the few <laughs> few times in history that's happened. So I went from minus twenty-seven degrees to uh, about eighty or ninety degrees in a space of about a week. So it was a, <laughs> quite a transition. <laughs> that's awesome. So. Um... Well, uh, I, I would love to hear about your experience in Australia in terms of, of you know, how utilities, you know, the governance structure that's in place in Australia for utilities. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's been an interesting journey, and I think Australia probably mirrors a lot of other developed countries in the world. Uh, about 150 years ago, when they started developing Australia and establishing communities, uh, a lot of the governance structure was just local water boards. So just people getting together, deciding that they needed to build infrastructure uh, beyond just like a rainwater tank or you know a, a cesspit, and and to have a proper infrastructure to support the growing community. But what's interesting is about 100 years ago, um, Australians made a decision to transfer from a, a waterboard kind of mentality to having the local governments uh, own and operate. The, that infrastructure. So in Queensland, uh, we've, we're about 100 years of local governments still owning and operating that infrastructure, which is quite a legacy, I think. Um, but in the, the late 90s, uh, there was a lot of discussion about national competition and bringing business and accounting elements in, into the business. So it, it went from uh, basically like a public service to more of a commercial service and being more viable financially. So Australia has had this um, this evolution, if you will, towards regional water utilities or state-owned water utilities. And, and a really good example of that is in Tasmania. They have about, I, I'm not sure the exact number, but about 27 local governments, each of which uh, up until a few years ago provided water and sewage services for their communities. But a lot of those communities just can't afford uh, that infrastructure anymore. And so they, they combine those into three regional entities, and then recently they've combined them into one, Taswater. So that is owned by the local governments, but it's operated at arm's distance from local governments. So local governments still um, financially support the business, but the, the business is run separately from local governments. And, and what's been interesting over the last year has been this fight between local government and state government, where the state government was going to take over Taswater uh, to, to expedite a lot of the, the repairs that had been needed on this aging infrastructure. Uh, and they've come to an interesting arrangement where the local government basically sold about a 10% share of the business to the state government. So the state government's at the table now and invested alongside local governments, which I think is a really excellent model. 
So across Australia, um, the other states and territories are either completely owned by the state government as a single entity or regional entities. And that means that uh, regional New South Wales and Queensland are the only places left where local governments are uh, still owning and operating those services directly. So in a way, we're, we're a bit of a dying breed, if you will, and uh, it makes for an interesting discussion nationally. Yeah, it must. I've got a, I've got a number of questions that, that kind of come out of that. Let me ask the first one. When you say the utility is operated separately from the local governments, is it, is that, does that mean it's a, it's a closed loop, so to speak, financially? I mean, who, who has, who has the political power to raise rates? Who, I mean, who does that, that piece of it? Um, I, I, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to explore that a little more. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So, yeah, you, you're right. It is a closed loop financially, which is one of the benefits, I think. So, um, well, I'll say benefit, but let me explain. So, uh, when you have that arm's distance uh, kind of uh, setup, that governance arrangement, then, yeah, the, the utility does separately issue its rates. So, I live in Brisbane, and, and I'm part of Queensland Urban Utilities, and so I get a separate bill from them, and that money goes to them, and they, they invest it back into the business. So, it is a closed loop. I wouldn't say that it's, uh, you know, where they can, they don't require any kind of external investment uh, because they're able to raise the funds uh, solely based on rates and, and that kind of internal fundraising. Where I'll qualify that is that in a lot of regional places, particularly in Queensland and in northern New South Wales, where the local government is running the business, um, there, there are some places where the water and sewage services are actually supplementing the cost of other community services that the community expects. So, you know, there are other services that we provide. I'll use parks and gardens as an example. It's a free service to, to most, you know, it's just there. The community doesn't necessarily have to pay for it. Uh, and some of the revenue they raise from water and sewage helps support that. But we have just a, a large number of councils as well where there's the external funding from the, the the council rates, we call them, you know, the, the, the money that the council raises that supports the water and sewage services because those utility fees aren't enough to support those services. So it, it cross-subsidizes, you know, backwards and forwards between those depending on the, the situation. Okay, so, so that, I, that, that's pretty interesting. Who has the political power to raise rates? Who, who holds that? It's a, it's a good question. So the, uh, the utilities that stand separate from uh, the councils or, or who run at state level will all have boards, and the boards are the ones that, that guide that direction. Uh, in Queensland, local governments have the power to, to set water utility rates, and we've had a, a bit of a discussion recently about economic regulation. So in other words, having an independent uh, body come in and assess whether they can or can't raise rates for the public. And they assess, you know, uh, competition, because in, in a monopoly market, you, you can set whatever rate you want, but you want to have somebody checking that to make sure you're not abusing that power. Um, so really in Queensland, in, specific, in particular, we have a Queensland Competition Authority, and they really only look at the larger utilities uh, in terms of that market power. And I think because the smaller ones, even though they're a monopoly, they're not charging what they should and they couldn't ever re re um, achieve full cost recovery. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it, it, it sounds like political leaders are still making the call on whether or not to raise rates. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 
and and they uh, there's an interesting letter I read from the the premier who's who's basically the governor of Queensland to the mayor of Brisbane City in 1929 saying look uh, this uh, this water board that we've created is is not financially sustainable and so we're going to push it into council and you're now responsible for it it's it's passing the buck in a big way uh, <laughs> but what's interesting in the letter is the the premier said that they wanted to, the business to be separate from you know a separate department within council but they wanted the councillors to to set the budget for the department and the the logic behind that was they wanted the councillors to be uh, representative of the community and they wanted the funding to be uh, reflective of community wants and desires but once they set the budget they were supposed to get out of the way and let the department actually deliver on it so I I think that still remains a a pretty key element of of most of Australia where they want the, the water business to be reflective of community wants and desires. Right, right. And, and you know, I, I know that in, for example, Britain, it's highly uh, privatized. You know, in, in the, an investor-owned utility owns more, most of the, the yeah. water utilities. And it, it's, I, I find it interesting that even though Australia and Britain, maybe at least I've always considered them fairly closely aligned, and that Australia is is mostly a – a, a country with state-run uh, utilities. Um, yeah, and Queensland is is distinctly different in that aspect too. I'll point to a couple elections ago. We had a, a, an amazing election where one of the political parties won 78 out of the 89 seats in the state parliament, and <laughs> it was incredible. It was just massive majority, and they lost the next election. They they went from 78 to 42 seats uh, in, in just a shocking defeat specifically because they proposed privatizing assets and the communities said we're, we're not having it and and to have an, that incredible fall from grace i think is just a powerful kind of statement about the what what queenslanders and, and australians believe that it's a public service it's, it's meant to support us as communities and and we just won't accept that but in New South Wales, interestingly, uh, they sold their electricity network, and, and I might add, probably just in time, because you know, with Tesla batteries and solar power, you know, having these large electricity networks are just uh, um, white elephants. And they sold that, but they've then taken all the money that they've sold and reinvested. Unfortunately, in New South Wales, they've, they've invested a billion dollars into the water and sewage industry in regional New South Wales. So I, I think if you're going to sell assets or you're going to privatize, you're going to use that revenue to support other public services in Australia. One of the things that I have uh, found in my practice is that utilities, the political uh, will to raise rates is often not just not there. And I'm kind of curious how that plays in Australia. I mean, are, 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 are the political leaders in Australia kind of subject to the same influences that I'm, that I am familiar with up in, in the States or Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, um, we've done a study in, in some of our regional uh, local governments where they, they compared the rates that they were charging their residents for water with other similar uh, councils. And they found they were charging less 
But when they looked at social economic disadvantage, so that means people who didn't have an education, people who were unemployed or, you know, that would really struggle to, to be successful in, in a community, they, they had less disadvantage, which meant that there was more capacity for those residents to pay higher rates bills. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, those councils, the, their comment was, we'll never achieve full cost pricing for this service, so why should we make uh, big efforts to do so? And, and I think they're sensitive to those cost of living pressures, but but I take your point. I think um, it's an important service, and if you underinvest in it, then you're going to create bigger issues uh, in the future, which is a lot of the work that I do is trying to raise that profile and, and actually encourage not only state government but local governments to invest more. Yeah. So how, let's let's. What are the messages that work in Australia along those lines? Unfortunately, we we tend to run our infrastructure to failure, and and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, some of it has to operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can imagine if you just suddenly turned off a sewage treatment plant, you know, you, you, people want to flush the toilets when they want to flush the <laughs> toilets. So you you got to accommodate for that. So we have to run to failure. When it fails, then uh, we tend to have this um, quick response to that. So when there's large failures, it seems to be that there, there's funding there to support that. But I worry because that's just-in-time funding, and that's driven by failure, and, and really we need a more proactive response to that. I think the other, the other issue in this space is that there's just a lot of voices and a lot of demands on, on local governments. We, we provide 270, close to 300 different types of jobs within local government, and, and I reckon we provide about as many services as well. And, and the pressure to satisfy everyone is just really challenging. So you, you have, if you can imagine, you know, you put your hand up for, to run for, for government and you get elected and, and there's not a, a really good kind of induction process or, or you, know, um, you know, education around that. And, and you're set at a table and they said, all right, here's 10 urgent things you need to do, but we only have enough money to do two or three of them. You know, it's, it's a challenging space. And I think uh, while everybody listening to this podcast, and I think yourself and myself would think that water and sewage should always rise to the top of the list, the, the reality is that there's a lot of other really high-profile important issues that we compete with. And so it's just really a balancing act. I agree with that completely. I, th I think um, folks in the water and sewer uh, industries need to be well-rounded so they can understand what, what all the demands are that, uh, yeah. that, that local governments are facing. Um, uh, what kind of infrastructure issues are you experiencing in Australia? Oh, quite a few. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we're, we're not much different than the United States. Uh, and uh, just an outline of, of what I know in Queensland, we, we have something like uh, 590 treatment plants. So that's uh, water and sewage treatment plants across the state. Those service about 375 communities. Queensland's distinctive in, in Australia where we're the most dispersed uh, regional population. We've got more regional population than any other state or territory in Australia. So that, that's roughly about a million people outside of southeast Queensland, um, which, you know, depend on these services. We have 42,000 kilometers of, of water mains. That's enough to wrap around the earth once. And uh, 33,500 uh, sewer mains. Um, and a lot of this was installed in the, the 1950s and 60s, that kind of nation-building era post-World War II. Uh, you know, a lot of the soldiers came home, they needed jobs, we put them to work building infrastructure. It was a, a really good time, I think, for the industry. 
But because we built so much in such a short space of time, it's all coming to the end of its life. We usually estimate um, infrastructure like pipes will, will last about 70 to 80 years, and, and that depends on a lot of conditions. Um, but you do the math, and, you know, when you start building stuff in the 50s and 60s, you know, we're about 70, 80 years from that. So we're looking at um, what we call the infrastructure cliff. And I heard somebody recently say it's like watching a snake swallow a, a, a bowling ball and watch it you know, kind of move <laughs> along. That, that's really what we've had is we've had this glut of infrastructure which was installed, which is really good. It's allowed a lot of those communities to actually exist. But it also means that we need to, to try to avoid the same mistake and, and not just have a massive investment all at once right now. We need to have a staged investment so we don't repeat that mistake in the future. So it's, it's one part, how long can we get out of this infrastructure and get it to last as long as it can? But two, how do we stage that next investment? investment into the replacement infrastructure and the renewal so that we don't find ourselves in the same situation in about another 70, 80 years. Yeah. Have, um, have, have the governments running the utilities, have, have they looked at digital water? Look, it's, it's an active part of our discussion. That's I, I would be hard pressed to go to a meeting where that isn't brought up in some form or another. We have a because we have such a range. We've got really large utilities, and and, and I'll, I'll just speak to, to Queensland specifically because that's what I know the most. And and I'm sure there's other similar things happening in other states and territories. But because Queensland has such a large range of utilities, all the way up from about two two to three million people down to about fifty people, you know, they each have a different capacity to to be involved in that discussion. But I will say one of our councils, and I'll name them specifically, Mackay Regional Council has done an excellent job in this space. They've installed smart meters on every connection. They can pretty much tell when you flush the toilet, <laughs> you know, they, they, they know how much water is being used for every house. But what's interesting about that is they've been able to characterize um, what their population uses in terms of water. So they can predict when they're going to use more water or less water. And they've been able to plan accordingly. So that's really helped them with uh, infrastructure planning. They would have had to build a new water treatment plant, but they've been able to uh, postpone that uh, uh, because they've had better engagement with their community and, and raise the awareness of the value of water through that smart kind of water meter infrastructure. I think the big challenge in this space is not the technology. The technology is good. It's out there. But it's just an underappreciation of what that technology does for you. I don't think we put enough value on knowledge and understanding, which when you have all that data being generated by that smart technology, it helps you understand things better. And, and we don't put a value on that. Uh, a lot of the business cases for the smart meters boil down to we don't have to send somebody out to manually meet the readers anymore. And, and it's so much more than that. And I think uh, we need to have more of that discussion. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think I think just te te you know technology usage um, um, among everyone. Like if you if someone asked me what what percentage of the features on your you know your smartphone do you use, it's probably about ten percent. You know, or maybe yeah, exactly. or maybe even less. I mean, it's it's just hard. There's just it's hard to to be. It's hard to get into that mode where you're constantly learning. You know, at some point you just kind of want to shut off and say, okay, I got it to the point where it, it works for me. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, uh, the example I use is, you know, you wouldn't kick your grandmother out of the house when she hits 90 because she's reached the end of her useful life. You know, you <laughs> want her around as long as you can. But, but that's the challenge with this infrastructure is we want it to last as long as possible, but we don't want it to, to break. And so the only way you can do that is with technology. And I think uh, – 
all of the, the utilities in Australia realize that the challenge is um, really having that expertise and doing it. And I think that's a real big skill set that we're, we're missing. You know, we need to know how to manage that transition at the end of uh, the life of the infrastructure to the new uh, infrastructure, not only in, in knowing when to do it, but also knowing what you're going to replace it with when, when you need to. Yeah. Speaking of replacements, uh, you, met, you mentioned the billion dollars that got reinvested, uh, and I can't remember the, the entity that, that reinvested. In, in New South Wales, yeah. New, New South, South Wales. Wales, yeah. New South Wales took the proceeds from it, the sale of its electric system, and, and you know plowed that into the water. Are there, you know, for for utilities that aren't that fortunate, are there unique or interesting funding mechanisms that they're using to, you know, besides just what I can, you know, just straight rate increases that support debt issuances or things like that? Is there anything unique coming along? in Australia for, for funding? I, I wish I could answer positively. <laughs> uh, uh, we, in, a, in Queensland in particular, had a, basically a partnership with the state government. So back all the way to 1930 when they transitioned from the water boards into the local governments, there, there's been a subsidy. And up until 2009, that subsidy was 40%. So whatever oh the council needed to build, you know, the state would chip in 40%. And I think it was a, an excellent arrangement. But the the challenge with that was that some councils um, had grown a, a sufficient population base where they no longer needed that subsidy. It was kind of just the cream that came along into the council to support things. And the state had a, a serious look at that and says, oh, you know, why are we paying these big councils a subsidy? They can do it themselves. And, and unfortunately for us, they cut the whole program. So that meant that the, the regional utilities that, that desperately needed that subsidy had nothing. And it's been replaced by a, a system of grants, which uh, all comes with political announcements and ribbon cutting and, and, and the like. And in Queensland, we have more than 70 different programs just for local government and grants. And it's become just this marketplace of opportunity and grants, which none of which are targeted to water and sewerage, which means that we now have projects which are being proposed, which seem like a good idea. But if they went through the pub test, we call it, um, it wouldn't pass. You know, people would say that just doesn't make sense. It's not a good thing. And so so the wrong infrastructure is getting funded and it's encouraging the wrong behavior. So I'd really like to go back to a more structured funding arrangement and a partnership with the state. And like I said, to try to, to uh, soften that infrastructure cliff so that we're not having a massive investment, but we're having a smart investment, strategic investment. And that's really been a, a large part of what I've been doing in my job is having those discussions with the state saying, look, look, guys, how do we get you back to the table so that we can really support those regional communities? Yeah, yeah. Um, we've all heard a lot about drought in Australia. I mean, the, the, the Murray-Darling River Basin, things of that nature, uh, that, that's, that's the big story I see coming out of Australia, at least from, from where I sit. Uh, how, how has drought impacted you in Queensland? Um, and you know, what, what, what's kind of the impact to the utilities there? It's a big impact for us, uh, and, and it feels a bit like home, to be honest, you know, from Arizona. There's not a lot of rain in Arizona, so <laughs> at times I have to, to, to blink my eyes and think hard and remember I'm in Australia. Look, uh, Queensland is um, notable in Australia because we do have quite a few natural disasters, and, and I would call drought a natural disaster, even though it's, it's probably not considered to be one, uh, unfortunately. 
Um, we, when I moved to, to Brisbane in 2009, they were just coming out of what they called the millennial drought, which started in 1996 and went to 2009, so uh, well over 10 years. And the dam levels had reached the point, they were down to about 15% and almost down to the dregs. And so it was very much a crisis kind of mentality in Brisbane. And what was interesting from that is that the, the water demand, people were more conscious of their water use, had dropped to about 135 uh, liters per person per day, which is just really, really low. And the, the, the more interesting thing about that is even now we're only up to about 160, where there's other places in Australia which are up to two to 300 liters per person per day. So that, that kind of drought crisis situation is really powerful in influencing behavior. And in Brisbane, it, it's done that in a big way. We had uh, a few years ago about 90% of the state was in drought. Um, for a lot of our regional towns, they actually draw their water from the Great Artesian Basin, which has heaps of water in it. I, I think it may be the largest aquifer in the world. Um, and so they're pretty resilient in terms of drought. Uh, I wouldn't say the water always tastes good, but it's wet, and you know, that does the job most of the time. Um, so groundwater is absolutely key in Queensland in terms of making it through the drought. We, we have won a major drought roughly every 18 years, but we have a flood roughly every 16 years. And that's because a lot of cyclones uh, or, or hurricanes come through. They call them cyclones down here in the southern hemisphere. Um, they come through Queensland quite a bit, being right on the Pacific Ocean and, and Coral Sea. So you have utilities which are, are, are actually quite used to really extremes and weather. And I think what will be interesting for us is um, how climate change either makes that worse or more intense or, or varies it. I, I expect we're going to have uh, more biting droughts and more um, and more epic floods in Queensland. And the utilities are, are just uh, starting to look into that and have those discussions about how to respond to climate change as well. Yeah, that's obviously that's a big issue everywhere, right? So, um, uh, you, we've, you've mentioned regionalism a lot. How's regionalism working in Australia? Oh, I think actually Queensland is doing quite well in that, and, and you've hit on probably the, the one thing I'm the most passionate about. Uh, I am responsible uh, for facilitating a program we call QRAP. So it stands for Queensland Water Regional Alliance Program, QRAP. And the idea of that program came about 11 years ago because, like I said, Queensland is it will be probably the last state in Australia where local governments continue to own and operate water and sewer services. And because of that, a lot of them are expensive, they're remote, they're difficult to service, and, and they really struggle individually. And so the LGAQ, the Local Government Association Queensland, who I work for, um, got together with the, the Queensland Water Directorate, which is the technical peak body for the water utilities. And when we said, let's let's have a different look at this. Let's see what we can do differently. And came up with the idea of QRAP. And, and the, the one requirement of the program is that councils or, or local utilities have to get together and they have to consider three, at least three different alternatives for governance. So you can consider status quo, you can consider like an informal alliance or a formal alliance, and you can consider all the way up to commercializing and privatizing the business uh, as, a, as a region. So they have to go through and do that assessment. And most of them have engaged consultants to, to help facilitate that discussion. But what's been interesting about that is every group, and we have five operating in Queensland at the moment, has agreed that some kind of alliance is a good thing. 
So they, they recognize and acknowledge that, that working together will provide benefits for their communities. And I think what's been interesting about this is we haven't pushed it on them. It's a voluntary program. They come together uh, of their own accord, and they, they have a discussion about water. And even after they've had that governance review, we don't tell them which projects to do or what to progress, but we do encourage them financially. So there are some very modest uh, funding opportunities to, to progress the project, but we also support them politically and, and, and just, you know, being there to help with the discussion. And, and it's been really great to see these QRAP groups grow and mature. And now it's at the point, and, and people underestimate this, they come to the table willingly to have a discussion about water and surge, and that's no easy task. The program doesn't require to give up doing what they're doing, but it does require them to think differently. And it's been really good. And I think Two key elements of that success is, one is you got to have the political people involved. They've got to have an interest in it. But also, two, you got to get some runs on the board. you got to show them why the, the collaboration will make, it, make a difference. And it could be something as much as saving a little bit of money on a project or you know, having a good community outcome or some positive publicity. But you got to show them that the program will actually make a difference uh, tangibly. Yeah. How did you do that? I mean, uh, was it just people meeting a couple of times and actually starting to build trust or was there something else involved? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's building the trust. I mean, my job wouldn't, it wouldn't work without trust and, and, and having their interest involved. I, I think we needed the state to provide some financial support. There needed to be some financial incentive. Uh, everybody's busy doing their job. They, they do it very well full time and, and they just don't have a lot of extra time and capacity to do uh, you know additional work. So this is very much viewed as additional work for a lot of people initially, but very quickly it becomes business as usual. So you know, for for a utility that needs to go and scour air scour their mains, you know, that's something that they were going to do anyway. But if you do it as a region, well, suddenly, you know, it kind of reduces your workload actually. And uh, I, I think they're just starting to see that. So you need the financial incentive. You need to build the trust. Uh, but I also think you need to to create this kind of low pressure situation where people can have the discussion. You need to create the opportunity for the discussion to happen initially and then allow it to grow. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think a lot of those turf battles are just because they haven't sat down and tried to get to know each other. Yeah, and, and, find... yeah, and I think you don't want to be too big. You don't want to shoot the moon initially. You know, start with the simple things. You know, it could be something like uh, we, we've had a lot of success with the, the regulator and saying, hey, look, you're, you're regulating these seven different utilities differently. Can you just can you just assign one person to this group of seven and just work through that one person? And, and even that has a benefit. So that's a simple thing that doesn't have a big impact. It's not a financial, uh, you know, consideration, but it makes a big difference. Aaron, you've been great today. I've, I've, you know, kind of what's your leave behind message? What, what do you want to leave listeners with? I, I think it's important to recognize the water industries in a period of transition. And a lot of people are scared by that. You know, we're, we're moving, you know, from one generation of infrastructure to another, there's new technology, there's a lot of stuff out there, but I, I see it as a really good opportunity. And, and these are important, long lasting decisions. And I think to have that kind of involvement in the industry right now is, is a really exciting time. And, and I think the second thing I would say is that for, for people listening to this podcast, they, they already have an interest in water, um, but it would be good to reach out to younger people 
and encourage them to do more in the industry because we we just like we have an infrastructure cliff i think we also have what i call a workforce cliff you know there's a lot of aging engineers and operators and, and water treatment professionals or, or water professionals out there but but we need to encourage the younger people in the industry to to step up more and, and to be more involved and i think reaching out to the the younger uh, uh younger people is is a really good thing yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So, Aaron, again, thank you so much. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to, to, to get that information? Well, I, I've been quite active on social media lately, so I have a Twitter account uh, for, for the next little while. It's LGAQ Water uh, on Twitter. Uh, that's all one word. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well. So uh, if you could, my, the spelling of my name is a bit different. So maybe if you can include that on the podcast, yeah. if they just look up, uh, look me up on LinkedIn, happy to talk to them there. Yeah. All right. Go out and, and connect with Aaron, follow him on Twitter. And uh, Aaron, again, we, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. I know you got up a little early uh, to be with us today. So uh, much appreciated. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, David. All right. Bye, Aaron. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Aaron Hyatt. As I said at the top, he's, he was fantastic. I learned a lot about Australian utilities, what the governance structure is like, uh, what the issues they're facing are, how the infrastructure is handled, things of that nature, I think was, was very interesting, very informative. So, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, you can leave a comment on the show notes. You can find those show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 151. Uh, you can tweet at me about the podcast uh, with my handle, which is at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. So I uh, would, would really look forward to uh, hearing what your thoughts are about the podcast. Also, don't forget to take the listener survey. You can find that at thewatervalues.com. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.